Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Matthew Laponte is Associate Professor of Journalism at Utah State University. He spent six years as National Security Reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. And in an upcoming presentation called What Journalists Can, Can't, Will, and Won't Tell You About Ukraine, he'll discuss his experiences as a reporter in the Iraq War. He'll also reflect on his experiences in Ukraine, the former Soviet Socialist Republic of Moldova, and the frozen conflict state of Transnistria. That presentation is Wednesday, 4.30 p.m. in the Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101 on the USU campus in Logan. Matthew LaPlante, uh, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Happy to be here. Uh, so I, I guess, first of all, we'd, uh, you'll be talking this presentation and uh, this hour as well about, um, you know, for, from your perspective as a reporter. But uh, I want to have you put on your hat just as a regular old consumer of news. What are you especially looking for from the coverage uh, of the, the, the invasion of Ukraine? You know, it's, we live in such a different world than we did just a few years ago in terms of what constitutes war coverage. Um, this is no longer a uh, media paradigm in which we are waiting for journalists to give us a glimpse about what's going on on the ground. Um, we're getting those things in near real time from social media. And so what I'm really looking for right now, what I'm trying to gather is uh, enough varied perspectives you know, from this, what's being called the TikTok war, um, to put together a more comprehensive picture of what's happening uh, holistically in, in Ukraine right now. And it's, uh, I got to tell you, Tom, it's, it's difficult because I feel like my muscles were well built for the uh, old way of reading about war. Uh, and unfortunately, my muscles were really well built for that um, because, you know, our globe is one of uh, constant and frequent uh, conflict, but I'm learning anew how to understand uh, these sorts of situations when they're playing out in real time. And so I'm, uh, I- I'm learning as I go. So you say this is being called the TikTok war. Unfortunately, I'm <laughs> enough of an old folk, I'm not even on TikTok. Um, but, but I guess there's uh, reporting regular folks posting videos and such. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely true. I, I gave a, a TED Talk uh, a few years ago in which I had professed that really the, uh, you know, old school journalism, um, not not just in, in the context of war, but in the context of everyday life, was being uh, quickly replaced by people taking it upon themselves to commit acts of journalism. And there are a lot of challenges with that and there are a lot of growing pains with that um but but certainly um right now what we have is a situation of which if you chose to and i don't recommend this right now i don't think it's a great idea but if you chose to only follow this war through twitter or through tiktok or facebook posts or whatever your social media uh choice is you could do so, and you could do so um, with a relative degree of understanding about what's happening on the ground um, that is, uh, while certainly different from what you would get from traditional media sources, perhaps not more or less informed. Um, 
I think doing that takes, you know, personal curation and, uh, and personal, uh, skeptical strategies that are a little different than what we used to employ, but it is certainly possible. You said that you're you're trying to consume widely enough to what to get at the truth, get because uh, a wide mosaic will get you there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to consume widely enough to build enough of a substantial understanding of what's happening that I feel like I have the right to begin thinking and opining about what should be done. Because we should not make any mistake the United States is going to play a substantial role in this conflict moving forward. We already do, and we will be more so, uh, hopefully, as we, we see strategies to get our brothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine out of this situation. Um, and I don't think that, you know, as, you know, members of a democratic nation, uh, we can absolve ourselves of the responsibility to not pay attention. So what I want to do is like, look, if I'm, if I'm going to be asked as a citizen of this democracy, this democracy, which is going to play again, a major role in, in this conflict moving forward to, um, you know, vote on the politicians who are going to be making these issues, to write letters to the politicians who are going to be making these decisions, to uh, debate with my fellow Americans about what the right strategy moving forward is. Uh, I feel it's important for me to have an understanding, for us all to have an understanding of what's actually happening. Um, and, and it's important for us to all to realize that in war, things happen quickly. Um, and the situation changes. And so how you feel about something today um, and how the situation is unfolding today might not be the same, uh, you know, a week from now or a month from now or certainly a year from now. Of course, there are political aspects to us. Talking about internal U.S. United States uh, politics will probably become even more pronounced as we go forward. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the, you know, Russian state media. Uh, so I guess from both sides of that is, is there, or do you worry about misinformation, disinformation, propaganda on TikTok, you know, Twitter, Facebook, um, along with this citizen reporting? I, I absolutely do. Um, I think that this is a, look, misinformation. A lot of people talk about misinformation like it's something new. Like this is something that we're just now dealing with you know, with the emergence of social media and, you know, easy publishing access, easy global publishing access. The truth is misinformation has been part of our information ecosystem uh, from the very beginning of having an information ecosystem. I mean, you can imagine, you know, a, a cave person walking over the hill and meeting a new tribe and then coming back and telling his tribe, about what he found over there. And, uh, you know, he probably embellished a little bit one way or another. This is, you know, central to who we are as human beings. So this isn't a new thing. And a lot of the strategies that we've always used to try to understand what is misinformation uh, can still be employed. The difference today is how fast and how far misinformation can spread. Um, so whereas it's always been a weapon, 
that we have used to uh, in times of con- conflict. Um, today, it can be impl- employed as a rapidly acting weapon, and that's uh, that's something that we should be aware of, and we should be uh, uh, ha- keep a healthy skepticism about any one piece of information that we read. Um, and certainly keep a healthy skepticism about anything that we're told uh, that there is one way to think about that this is a piece of look, look this is a piece of evidence that confirms our deepest darkest suspicions about President Putin or this is a piece of information that confirms our uh, our belief that uh, you know Ukrainian uh, freedom fighters are the heroes in this situation. Um, This is, uh, we are in a situation right now in which it is very, very easy, especially for Americans who, many of whom, most of whom, as a matter of fact, could not pick Ukraine out on the map a week ago, um, are having a, uh, the blank slate uh, of their understanding of this conflict filled rapidly. And we are easily persuaded to think one way or another about issues when uh, we have a blank slate to work with. What would you uh, suggest? Uh, how would you suggest, uh, you know, I or someone, someone uh, listener go about, uh, you know, consuming this news or, or seeking out specific news sources or, uh, you know, how would you suggest we go forward with this? Um. I'd suggest the first strategy uh, for anyone who says, okay, it is my obligation to have a better understanding of what is happening in Ukraine right now, to resist the temptation to believe that part of that obligation is to come up with an opinion on what is happening and why it is happening. Um, if, again, last week you couldn't pick out Ukraine on a map, but this week you are completely convinced that it is President Joe Biden's fault that these dominoes have fallen the way that they are falling, um, I, I would contend that there is a really good chance that you don't know what the heck you're talking about. Um, and uh, likewise, if last week you could not pick out Ukraine on a map, but uh, this week you are completely convinced that it is former President Donald Trump's fault that all of this is happening, I would also contend that you probably don't know what the heck you are talking about. Um, But ignorance doesn't have to be something that we are embarrassed about. It doesn't have to be something that we, uh, that prevents us from moving forward and developing our understanding of issues. It's just a starting place. And it's an honest, starting place, right? It's like telling yourself, I don't know enough to know what I think politically about this, to know what I think my leader should be doing, to know who I think should be to blame. That's a really good starting point. And then once you're there, what you can do is, is very quite easily start sweeping away the people who are telling you how you should feel about this, right? If you haven't read any on-the-ground reporting, but you've been doing a lot of listening to Tucker Carlson about what's going on in Ukraine. That's not a person who's telling you information that uh, comes from the ground in Ukraine. That's a person who's telling you 
what he thinks you should think. Um, and so going back to your original question, Tom, like what are some strategies for starting to develop an understanding of what's going on in Ukraine? It's starting with on-the-ground reporting. And that's not just from journalists these days. That's also from sources like TikTok and Twitter and Facebook. Um, but we should maintain a healthy skepticism of any one source, even a collection of sources. And particularly, we should resist uh, the temptation to believe that what we are seeing is uh, immediately um, immediately able to, we, we are immediately able to put that into a bucket that confirms our pre-existing notions, whatever they are, about what's happening, uh, about why it's happening, about who is to blame, and about what the steps are moving forward. If all of these pieces start falling very easily into, uh, you know, the buckets of your preconceived notions, um, chances are you're not getting a full and complete picture because war is difficult. War is nuanced. War is ever-changing. And I, in uh, my unfortunate uh, long history of covering war, um, and being in wars, uh, have never seen a situation in which everything is black and white and everything fits, you know, the picture that I assumed existed when I stepped into the situation. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, I want to have you put on your reporter hat to give us a perspective as a journalist. Uh, that's going to be the subject of, of your talk coming up. Uh, we're talking with Matthew LaPlante. He's Associate Professor of Journalism at Utah State University. He spent six years as National Security Reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, his upcoming presentation is called What Journalists Can, Can't, Will, and Won't Tell You About uh, Ukraine. We'll discuss some of his experiences in Iraq, uh, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Transnistria. Uh, the presentation, by the way, is Wednesday, 4.30 p.m. in the Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101 on the USU campus in Logan. Everyone is welcome to that uh, presentation. We'll have more following this break. This is Gina Wickwar for Bringing More to Life. Aging adults benefit from social support, which is essential to living independently longer. Positive social experiences in late age are linked with immediate health benefits, including better immune function. Research shows that even if they don't remember, positive social interactions with persons with dementia yield more positive behavior and higher well-being, both short-term and long-term. Whether at home or in a care facility, find time to interact with an older adult, with or without dementia. Simply listen to the person express his or her thoughts, feelings, and needs, and you will both smile. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour today is Matthew LaPlante. He's Associate Professor of Journalism at Utah State University. Uh, previous to his life in academia, he spent six years as national security reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, he was also a reporter in the uh, Iraq War and uh, has experiences in Ukraine, former Soviet Socialist Republic of Moldova, and the frozen conflict state of Transnistria. He'll talk about some of those experiences in a presentation coming up on Wednesday. It's called What Journalists Can, Can't, Will, and Won't Tell You About Ukraine. 
So that presentation is on the USU campus. It's Wednesday, 4.30 p.m., Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, and everyone is is welcome. So Matthew LaPont, that's a provocative title, What Journalists Can, Can't, Will, and Won't Tell You About Ukraine. And I understand this comes out of your experiences reporting war. Yeah, although, I, you know, we came up with the title before I wrote the talk, and so I'm uh, um, now regretting uh, what I thought was quite a clever title when uh, Professor Candy Carter-Olson, who was a member of our department and who asked uh, if I would be willing to give a talk, asked uh, me to come up with something. Um, and so now I'm, I'm struggling a little because, as I told you earlier, Tom, the situation for how we consume, how, how we do war reporting and how we consume war reporting is so different today than it was, you know, just, you know, 10 years ago, which uh, was about the last time that I was on the ground uh, in, a, in a military war. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I am struggling a little bit to figure out, like, what, what it is that reporters can, can't, will, and won't tell you, particularly in the context in which Man, there are fewer reporters, uh, traditional reporters, traditional journalists on the ground in this war than uh, would have been the case uh, in just 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, so maybe we can uh, take some of your experiences in some of these areas and, you know, and, and find application for what's happening today. Uh, you you reported uh, in the Iraq War. Um, what, what stands yeah. out to you from that experience? Um, I will say that one of the things that um, I think a lot of people don't fully recognize um, when they're consuming journalism from uh, any situation, and particularly conflict situations, and then particularly on top of that war, is just how much journalists are like a little tiny pin light inside a very dark room. Like any one perspective, um, you know, even when being done with the greatest of intentions, with the greatest of professionalism and, uh, you know, thoughtfulness toward uh, ethical reporting, is just shining a little light on one little spot in that dark room. And so, you know, I would, I came back from my first trip reporting in Iraq and, you know, neighbors and friends would come over and they'd say, you know, okay, well, you know, like, how should we feel about this? Like, what, like, what is really going, you know, I got this question a lot. What is really going on over there? And I'd say, I can't tell you what's really going on. I can tell you what I saw. And then with the context of history, and the context of information that we can get from other places, we can begin to build a better understanding. But, you know, I traveled across a lot of territory in Iraq. I've met a lot of people. And still at the end of my time there uh, on my first trip, and, and even, you know, two trips later, three, uh, three trips later, um, I didn't feel like I had a superior command of what was happening. I felt like I had been privileged to be able to tell a few stories that contribute to the larger picture. Um, and so, 
so yeah, I mean, like, I think that's one thing that everybody should really keep in mind in, in any situation, and certainly in the situation is as chaotic and ever-changing as what's happening in Ukraine right now, is that the picture you're seeing uh, is only one very small piece of the larger story. Um, and it takes time, and it takes patience, and it takes effort to develop an understanding that is uh, in any way comprehensive and authoritative. It, uh, b- by the way, it, it occurs to me that what I'm focusing, I think, most on what hits me, I guess it's the humanity of the situation right, that connects us all, are, are the individual stories, right? The, the, when, when the reporters talk to individual people, their individual problems in the middle of war, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lost loved ones, etc., is uh, I, that must affect you as a reporter? People you met, maybe that you maybe people that you, you know, met and then later died. Uh, that must stay with you. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely does. It forever does. Um, I have, uh, you know, multiple experiences, many experiences, unfortunately, in which people who were kind enough and brave enough to share with me their stories, um, you know, very shortly thereafter were no longer with us. And, um, and those stories, um, they, you know, they, they are so important because they help us contextualize. They help us care, right? Like war is really, really complicated. It's really easy to say it's too much for me, I don't want to know. And the way that we draw people back into caring enough to hopefully develop some contextual understanding as to what's going on so that they can make good decisions about how they're advising their leaders and their democracy to act and respond is through these human stories. Mm. Um, and we're seeing these in Ukraine right now, um, and they are uh, they're heartbreaking. The, the stories of uh, people who just a week ago were teaching kindergarten and today are part of a militia defending their cities. Um, the stories of college students who could never have pictured themselves in the military, who are now carrying guns on the streets of Kiev. Um, it's, it's both uh, very hard to comprehend and also very, I think, easy to connect to. Because these are people who are defending their homeland. But I, I would like to make sure that we are thinking long and hard also, though, about the stories that we are privileged to see right now, the stories that we can get right now. There are stories like these among members of the Russian military, among uh, Russian speakers and ethnic Russians who have lived in Ukraine for a very long time and who have been hoping and even in some cases fighting for an independent state uh, for decades. Um, And it is, uh, it, it should be noted that um, the namelessness and facelessness of the Russian side of this story is fairly pronounced in the Western media right now. Um, that doesn't mean that in the final analysis we can't decide 
that there is a right and a wrong in this situation or something, you know, close to a right and a wrong in this situation. But I am always wary of a story where I'm only seeing the humanity of one side because that's not a complete story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've been to Ukraine. You reported from Ukraine. Tell us about the experiences in Ukraine. Um, so I've been to Ukraine. Uh, actually, um, I have not reported from Ukraine. Um, I have uh, done some work with the State Department teaching uh, free speech principles in uh, Moldova and Transnistria, um, and then have spent uh, time uh, in Ukraine. Um, you know, during those uh, during those times. Um, but uh, and so I've. I've um, I, I mean, Ukraine is, first of all, it's, it's a beautiful nation, it's a beautiful people, uh, incredible uh, exuberance for life that exists uh, across that country. Um, but uh, but in terms of journalistic experience uh, in Ukraine, I have not. But I do have uh, teaching experience in, in Moldova and Transnistria. Uh, so tell me about that. Uh, tell me about Moldova first. Um, so Moldova is a, uh, a very small, uh, nation. It's a relatively poor nation, uh, like Ukraine. It's part of the former Soviet empire. And, um, many people, uh, are, I think, correctly assuming that if, uh, President Putin, uh, succeeds, uh, in his uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine and successfully uh, takes more territory there that one of the next places that he will go will be Moldova. And these are these are all nations that are on the um, have been for a long time uh, in both a political and cultural, uh, battle for uh, for alignment. Right? Will these nations uh, align more with Western Europe, or will they align more with Russia? As the what were you know for a long time assumed to be increasingly old wounds of the Soviet Empire began to uh, heal themselves um, because culturally, uh, linguistically, often. Um, and uh, economically, these nations are very connected to Russia in many ways. And so there's this push and pull um, of, these, of these places and these people who are on the border of, uh, you know, Western Europe and, uh, and the former Soviet Empire in Russia. And um, so it's, it's, it's all long been a very fascinating place politically to watch as this has gone back and forth and to uh, think about where these alignments will end up. I, I guess an illustration that uh, whatever happens in Ukraine is, is, is not going to be the end, right? The, the, these, these forces, the, you know, these, these um, the, I guess the national interests of uh, all of these states are, are different uh, competing and, uh, you know, something will, have to give at least there'll still be conflict yeah and i think i think it's important for us to all recognize that while something has definitely shifted uh in recent uh weeks in terms of 
how President Putin has thought about this uh, long-term goal of uh, restoring uh, this former uh, to, I guess, use a word that would be uh, more aligned to the way that he and his allies think about this, the former brotherhood of states. Um, this is not something that is actually new. This is a long-term ambition. Uh, when uh, Secretary Albright, Madeleine Albright, first met with uh, Vladimir Putin, when the United States knew very, very little about him uh, 20-some-odd years ago, uh, when he first uh, assumed uh the, uh, when he first assumed leadership in Russia, um, she noted coming out of that meeting that his ambition, that his, to his great embarrassment, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And his ambition then and uh, still today now was to reunite that coalition um, and bring it back under the umbrella of a unified uh, Russian state. Um, or at least a, a coalition that is led first and foremost by Russia, um, and and so yeah, so there there has been this you know long since the end of the uh, what we call the end of the Cold War, and you know certainly since the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, there has been this long and elaborate uh, chess game uh, where. Uh, the, Russia and uh, Western Europe have been playing uh, a game intended to uh, earn the alliance of these states that are in the middle. Just have about three minutes uh, left here um, in this part of the program. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Transnistia. This is characterized as a frozen conflict state, uh, not unique, right? There are there are several of these where where the conflict just has been frozen. Yeah, I mean, absolutely one of the most fascinating places that I've ever been to in my life. Uh, I went there uh, on the invitation of the State Department to lecture on free spe- American free speech principles. Um, this is a place that looks and feels very much like old Soviet Russia. There are you know, busts of Lenin and Marx everywhere, and uh, you know they still fly the the hammer and sickle, and um, they still uh, wear the old Soviet style uniforms. Um, and so it's like going back in time. Um, and uh, it is uh, obviously uh, long been a place that is aligned with uh, Russia um, and uh, where uh, there has been uh, a Russian military presence. Um, and there, uh, this will be an important piece of territory for the, uh, for the staging of Russian troops should they be able to meet their objectives of taking uh, Ukraine. Uh, finally, just uh, about a minute or two left. Um, what are you would say to those folks? Uh, I confess to have felt this impulse. I'm, I'm fighting it. Uh, you, you just get depressed. Uh, conflict after conflict after conflict. You, you feel so bad for the you know the people involved. Um, a an impulse to just pull away from the news. Yeah, I think, you know, part of that stems from this real push that we have 
um, from parties that have an interest in us making up our minds about things, about seeing things in black and white. And so I, I guess the thing that I would say is, look, the solution isn't disengagement. The solution to this thing that you're feeling, that I think a lot of us feel, um, which is just being beaten down by bad news over time, is to recognize the nuance of the stories that are going on around us. And when you do that, you resist the urge to say, well, there's a black and a white here. Um, it allows you to, uh, to be sad, certainly, but you don't have to be angry all the time. You don't have to be fighting with your family members and your friends and the, you know, people on Twitter and Facebook who you feel like are trolling you, you know, for debate. Um, if we recognize nuance in situations and recognize that um, it, we don't have to have a fully formed opinion and that's okay. It is, it is okay to not know, then you can read about these situations and watch these situations with curiosity and general uh, and genuine human compassion instead of with this anger, which is, you know, really good for getting people to go out and donate and vote, but not really good for uh, creating, uh, um, for creating compassion uh, for creating understanding, and certainly not very good, Tom, as you've noted, for uh, our own personal uh, mental and emotional health. Um, we just can't be angry all the time. We're not designed that way. Yeah, yeah, good advice, good advice. Good information. Uh, Matthew LaPlante is Associate Professor of Journalism at Utah State University, and uh, he'll be giving a presentation on Wednesday uh, talking about some of his experiences as a reporter in Iraq and uh, reflect on his experiences in Ukraine, former Soviet Socialist Republic of Moldova, and frozen conflict state of Transnistria. That presentation is Wednesday, 4.30 p.m., Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101 on the USU campus, and everyone is welcome. Uh, Matthew LaPlante, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Take care. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll uh, have for you, as uh, Monty Python says, something completely different. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll give you a bit of my conversation from a year or two ago with uh, the writer David Gessner, his wonderful book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. I'll have a portion of that conversation following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Auto Evolution, owned and operated by Ron Stagg, keeping Cache Valley automobiles on the road for more than 20 years with service, repair, and maintenance. Located at 347 West Airport Road in North Logan. Information is available by calling 435-753-2521. Support also comes from USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy and Practice, helping families throughout Utah with up to three intervention, promoting the development of children under the age of three with a disability or developmental delay. Information at idrpp.usu.edu slash up dash two dash three. Thank you to everyone who submitted designs to our annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We had awesome work come in from all over Utah. 
Submissions have closed now, and you have until March 1st to vote for your favorite design. It's your vote that will determine the winner, and their design will be printed on this year's UPR mug, available during our spring member drive. So what would you like to see on your mug? Tell us by going to upr.org and casting your vote by noon on March 1st. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for Both Sides of the Aisle from KCPW, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time, Tom Williams. Our thanks uh, to Matthew LaPlante, Associate Professor of Journalism at USU. Um, once again, uh, that presentation is Wednesday, 4.30 p.m., Merrill Kazir Library Room 101 on the USU campus in Logan. Everyone is welcome to that. He's going to be talking about his experiences as a reporter applying those to uh, how we consume the news coming out of Ukraine. By the way, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, talked with uh, USU political science uh, professor Anna Pechenkina. She is a native of Ukraine, um, and we may well have her back on in a future program um, as this uh, as this war continues. Uh, hopefully it doesn't continue too long, of course, but we'll be covering this on on UPR and on Access Utah as, uh, as we go forward. Um, so... Uh, we turn next to uh, to something uh, completely different, though maybe some connections that you'll hear. Um, this is a, a part of a conversation from July of last year. Uh, when the pandemic struck, nature writer David Gessner turned to Henry David Thoreau, the original social distancer, for lessons on how to live. And those lessons of learning your own backyard, rewilding, loving nature, self-reliance, and civil disobedience Hold a secret that could help save us as we face the greater crisis of climate. Gessner's new book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. Uh, the publisher is uh, Tory House Press from right here in uh, Utah. Uh, so here is uh, a few minutes of my conversation from last year with uh, the writer David Gessner. David Gessner, I want to, this, this struck me, this is uh, from the chapter called Homeless. I'll just uh, mm -hmm. quote you here. This is David Gessner. I remember the weeks after the towers fell being particularly beautiful along the coast. The planes crashed into the twin buildings. The people fell or jumped, but while human beings were convinced that nothing would ever be the same, the natural world carried on as it always had. Then later in this uh, paragraph, it might sound quaint, uh, might sound quaint and pastoral, but it wasn't. Not exactly. It was in Congress, really. Nature striding along uh, its usual procession toward winter, while for us, despite all politicians crying for normalcy, nothing felt normal. Uh, it's quite striking as you, you look at nature unchanging while it feels like everything around us is changing. Uh, probably similar feelings during the pandemic, but uh, a slower-moving event, of course. Yeah. I mean, think of, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience, too where people come up to you and say, oh, I've started to watch birds, or I've been working on my garden in the backyard, or I've been, you know, it seemed like while this larger crisis was going on, people were discovering the, uh, this, these natural worlds and seeing, I mean, for me, one of, the, one of the striking things about the beginning of the pandemic 
was it was a time of isolation, but it was also a time of migration for the birds. And, you know, where I am in North Carolina, it's this massive uh, you know, movement. And so it was the opposite of, of solitude and isolation in a way in, in their world. And I think it continued through the year where, as I said before, we had this kind of dual sense of being private, away, you know, not not necessarily solitude, because you were probably trapped in the house with a few other people, or um, and maybe not trapped, that's too mean a word, but, uh, and, but then, you know, my next-door neighbor, who was one of the only people I saw at the beginning, uh, he, he voted for the, um, uh, without getting too political here, for the candidate I did not vote for. And when the... Um, election occurred. The next morning, I, I got a six-pack of beer that said, to the victor go the spoils, uh, reaching out from the other side. And I just think of how that moment in our neighborhood, on a micro level, was so different from what I was seeing on the television, where you would never think uh, one human being who believed differently would, would respond in that way. And so for me, it was all about taking it down to the neighborhood and the smaller level. And, you know, Thoreau was famous for neighborliness. Uh, that's another way the cliche of him is wrong. He, he was a big favorite of the kids in the neighborhood. He would take them on huckleberry parties. And uh, and he really, you know, by knowing Concord and by knowing the people and the animals of Concord really got to know the world. So I just think it's interesting how we think in anthropocentric terms, and everything is human, 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 and it takes an effort and discipline to think of the world beyond just us. I mean, it's natural in a way where we've evolved to care most about us, but the ability to care about the world beyond us is, is uh, it's extraordinary in the sense that it takes something extra, you know, and, and Thoreau's a good person pointing that way too, where he he saw kind of a biocentric vision of the world, not anthropocentric. You uh, talk about this in several points in the book, and uh, what I'm quoting here is from the epilogue. Um, you say, being himself, speaking of Thoreau, was his calling. Then over the page, you say maybe that's a you know, lesson we can take for ourselves, not to be like Henry, but to take as a lifelong task and a passion the art of being exactly like yourself. Yeah, it's funny how some people who are like that or take the Grateful Dead, you'd, you know, you'd think it would inspire people to be wild and the way they are, but they become deadheads instead. And people become throwheads and think that, you know, think that how to be is to be exactly like Henry. Whereas it seems to me the essential lesson is how to be in your, all your own quirks and strangeness is, is like you. And, and he, was emphatically that way, and he said, uh, "Here, my, you know, you can try my clothes on, but they may not fit. Don't try on ones that don't fit." So, a lot of what he says uh, in the book is emphatic and over-emphatic, and you may disagree with it. And it's not like there's a, uh, despite my book, it's not like there's a thorough plan or thorough program, right? It's just, it's more, um, more following the more the deep grooves of things that you are already passionate about or that you know you love. That really makes a difference for me. And of course, uh, one of most of the year was spent just in Wilmington, North Carolina. But the one time we broke free 
my daughter, my wife, and I, and a friend of our, my daughter's, uh, headed up to Concord and uh, did a little pilgrimage. And I snuck into Walden Pond at, at 5 a.m. And, and had a swim. And, um, and so it was, it was interesting in the midst of the pandemic to, to head, head to the home place of, of Henry. I'm interested to we're coming down maybe to the three or four minutes left in the conversation. You're, you're, you know, you live in North Carolina. You've traveled extensively, lived in Colorado. You're traveling out to Utah now. So I wonder what the, you know, with this overlay of Thoreau, what's the through line, do you think, between Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and say, Torrey, Utah? Well, I would say, well, first of all, I should mention that Torrey House Press, which is in Torrey, Utah, or in Salt Lake, has been fantastic. And they, you know, I, I compared them the other night at a reading to the equivalent of a microbrewery, right, where, the, again, the smaller, the local. Um, and they're, they're having a renaissance right now, um, publishing a lot of great writers. I would just had uh, a talk with Craig Childs, a, a, a great writer who's publishing with Tory also. So there's that. But in a way, my through line is the opposite of Thoreau's. Thoreau, like Wendell Berry, believed you should marry a place and have one place, and that should be your place. I wrote an essay a um, long time ago for High Country News called A Polygamous Place. I said, that's not against the law. Um, I can love Colorado, I can love Utah, and I can love Cape Cod. Um, I've added North Carolina to the list, and it's just, you know, the way my life has come down, there hasn't been one place that I settled. But I do tend to love places that are beautiful and kind of uh, primal. And I do feel when I'm actually heading to Bluff today, and I get a little bit of a uh, rural middle of winter Cape Cod vibe when I'm there, just a place where people know each other and where the natural world is a prominent feature. You may not think that Cape Cod deserves its place in that conversation, but if you walk the beach in February and see humpback whales and, and northern gannets diving into the surf, you, you could reconsider. You might not know you're only an hour and a half from Boston. So there are places that um, uh, have struck a chord with me, and oddly, they tend to be east, west, south. Um, so I'm, I, I'm, I haven't quite defined myself in the Thoreauvian sense as a, a one-place person, at least not yet. That's a bit of my conversation from uh, July of last year with uh, David Gessner about his book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. You can find that full conversation on our website, upr.org. That's upr.org. Just a note uh, about tomorrow's program. We are uh, having periodic conversations with authors whose books appeared on our latest UPR community book list, uh, which was authored by you. Uh, we had a recent program, and uh, all of the books sent in. We, we've been uh, having conversations with several of those authors. Tomorrow, it's Shannon Hale, Utah-based author, uh, young adult fiction uh, mostly, and uh, she her Newbery Honor book, Princess Academy and the Goose Girl. Uh, Austin Land was written by her. It's turned into a film. Uh, her latest book, Amethyst, was on the list. So we'll be talking with Shannon Hale. By the way, uh, coming up this week or next, we will be talking with uh, the great writer Isabella Allende. Her book, uh, latest book, Violetta, appeared on our UPR community book list as well. We'll get you information on when that interview is happening. Thanks for joining us today for Access Utah.
Welcome to Utah Public Radio's Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels, a show that explores all things food. Your hosts are Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the History Department at Utah State University. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm pleased to welcome a fantastic guest, Evelyn Funda, recently retired professor of English, who is working on a book about American author Willa Cather's interest in Czech culture. You can read more about Evelyn's immigrant family in her memoir, Weeds, A Farm Daughter's Lament. Here now is Evelyn's essay, Stalking the Wild Mushroom. Like most people of Czech ancestry, my immigrant family loved to hunt mushrooms, and we found several varieties in the nearby Payette National Forest. There was a large yellow one that we called the cauliflower mushroom, which my mother cleaned of the dirt hidden in its many crevices, and then she chopped, sautéed, and mixed with beaten eggs. My grandmother, who was by far the most knowledgeable mushroom expert in our family, would search out the oyster mushrooms, taking care to distinguish them from the similarly gilled mushrooms that were poisonous. She would use these to make a cream sauce that we served over omelets. And of course, there was the queen of wild mushrooms, the delectable morels. These are families sliced, breaded, and fried in butter. Within both Czech native and immigrant communities, mushrooms, or hubi as they are called in Czech, serve as an iconic cultural symbol, and mushroom hunting has been a beloved tradition for centuries. Even today, Czechs go out into the forest to hunt mushrooms on an average of 20 times a year. For them, mushrooming is serious business. Fostering the love of both mushroom hunting and a love of the natural world, the older generations take great care to pass along mushroom identification tips and the location of their favorite, but secret, hunting spots. The activity of mushroom hunting is rich with layers of symbolic significance for Czechs. Because mushrooms often suddenly appear overnight, people sometimes associate them with magic and providence. Mushrooms also represent life born out of decay, as well as the capriciousness of life, where one mushroom can be a treasure while the next one can prove deadly. This intermix of life and death is characteristic of a Czech point of view and is evident in their common joke about mushrooms that goes, all mushrooms are edible, but some are only edible once. References to mushrooms appear throughout Czech folklore, artistic, and literary culture. Mushrooming finds its way into Leos Janáček's 1924 opera, The Cunning Little Vixen, where an old forester remembers the day when he and his bride had gone mushroom hunting. However, blinded by their new love, they gathered more kisses than mushrooms. Also in the 1920s, the famed Czech illustrator Josef Lada published a series of humorous stories and illustrations about mushrooming. In one, a man parades back and forth through the village with his overflowing basket just so that his neighbors can admire his hunting prowess. I close with the 19th century writer Božena Nemcová, who documented a Slavic mushroom origin tale about Jesus and Peter happening upon a joyous wedding party. Before they joined the gathering at the humble Bohemian cottage, Jesus admonished Peter to accept nothing more than bread and salt from the villagers because they were so poor. But the small Czech pastry called kolache proved too tempting for Peter, and he slipped a few into his pockets as they said their goodbyes. Later, as they walked through the forest, Peter lagged behind Jesus so that he could furtively nibble on his pastry. But each time he took a bite, Jesus would abruptly turn around and say, What are you eating? And each time, Peter would spit out the kolache and reply meekly, Nothing? This went on until there was no kolache left, and Peter had to confess his disobedience. 
Then, as an act of forgiveness and reparation, Jesus transformed the crumbs that Peter had spat out along the way into mushrooms, which would come back in the forest year after year. Thus, mushrooms became, as the Czechs say, the meat of the poor. Thanks so much to Evelyn Funda for a traditional Czech recipe called Kuba. See the UPR website. Support for UPR's Eating the Past comes from Rock Hill Creamery in Richmond, creating natural rind raw milk cheeses, including dark or snow canyon Edom, named after two southern Utah canyons. Cheese with character, rockhillcheese.com, and USU Dining Services, introducing Luke's Family Cafe on the Quad, located in the Agricultural and Applied Sciences Building, serving gluten-free, authentic Mexican street tacos with choices like carne asada, pork carnitas, and pollo asada. Details at usu.edu slash dining. Utah Public Radio joins the Bear River communities for immunity in presenting the Science Superheroes Unmasked exhibit at the Hiram Museum, celebrating the scientists and technology responsible for recent and historical vaccine developments, while encouraging students to consider careers in science, engineering, math, and technology. View Science Superheroes Unmasked at the Hiram Museum through May. UPR is a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSUFM Logan, KCEU Price, KUST Moab, KUSL Richfield, KUSK Vernal, KUSR Logan. Also heard at UPR.org or on the UPR app.